In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Ben Ornstein about how to build an app in a week. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 101. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, as always, and today it's uh, my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Ben Orenstein. How's it going, Ben? Dude, I'm awesome. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. So uh, today I wanted to have you on the show because there's a topic that I th- I've been thinking about for a while that I think would be interesting to get into, and I think you would be a good person uh, to talk to about that. And it's, it's really just around how uh, a lot of us have little side projects and stuff that we're working on and inevitably it seems like 90% of people never actually ship what it is that they're working on um, Mm -hmm. for one reason or another. So I thought it would be kind of interesting to talk about what can you do differently to try and make sure that you take whatever idea you have and actually turn it into something you can put out into the world before that sort of spark of motivation uh, dies on you or before other things <laughs> come up and kind of kind of get in the way. Um, so I totally. thought you would be a good person to talk to about this because uh, you've done a bunch of these uh, codecations, which I think we've talked about before on the podcast a handful of episodes back, but where basically you just kind of hole up in a cabin or an Airbnb for... Uh, I don't know, four or five or six days and just kind of bang something out and you have to get it done in that time frame. So I thought it'd be interesting to to chat with you about some of your experiences and some of uh, maybe the tricks and hacks that you use to, to kind of get stuff uh, done when it seems like everybody else is just kind of burning out on stuff. So hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Do you got any interesting uh, stories or thoughts to share? Yeah, I think we can definitely get into some things. Although as you were introing this, I was realizing like, I, I've i had some success with this, but I still have tons of things that I've never seen the light of day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, I've, I've discovered I can. So I think what I can offer is I can talk about the things where it, like it worked and it actually got out uh-huh. and discuss like what the commonalities are there. But I, I think it's worth a caveat that like I'm not batting a thousand on this. Reason sure. <laughs> so you, you touched on uh, this this thing that I have been doing for a few years with a buddy of mine, um, Chris Hunt, called that we called Codecations. And we sort of bumped into this by accident, like like most good ideas. So uh, years ago, I tweeted like, I can't believe I've never read the structure and interpretation of computer programs, which is this famous you know book from MIT about programming. And uh, I said something like, I just want to hole up in a cabin for a week and like just actually read this book and like do all the exercises. And Chris, who I had met at a couple conferences, but was not really friends with, just responded and was like, I'd do that with you. <laughs> and then so suddenly that like turned into an email thread and... Um, a couple months later, we had rented a Airbnb in uh, Costa Rica, of all places, and we brought the book. But we ended up actually just writing a closure script, which was a language I had been wanting to play around with, and Chris was interested in too. And we just like hacked on these like interesting little um, prototype ideas that we had, and uh, ended up shipping those things. They, those weren't uh, like an app or a product, but we did like learn enough and like come up with some goals and like made a thing, and then and got it done by the end of the, the trip. So in that case, you were just kind of building some some fun little kind of learning projects or whatever. But I know in other cases, you've done stuff like trailmix.life. Yes. And I think there was at least one other one. Oh, the uh, the podcasting app. Briefs. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, S- yeah so, I, I could, so that was sort of, that was V1 of Codecation. And it was like, okay, now we know the rough shape of it. But we had a really good time. I was like, let's do another one of these. And so somewhat, something like a year later, we did it again. 
And we had roughly the same plan, which is like, let's pick a cool language or like a cool tech we don't usually get to use and we'll build something interesting in it. And so we started off doing that. But then like a day or into the trip, I got an email from a service that I used to use called Olife, which is like a journaling service. It's a journal. It was a journaling service. And I said, hey, we're shutting down. And I was like, oh, this sucks. Like I, I use Olife a lot. I like it. It's, it's a bummer that they're shutting down. And I was like, what if we, and like, it's, it's a simple service. And so I said to Chris, I was like, what if we just like made our own version of this? Like, there's going to be a bunch of people, I think, that are like refugees from this uh, shutdown. We might be able to even get some customers and like charge for it. And he was like, all right, yeah. And so Codecation number two turned into, can we ship a paid SaaS product in like four or five days? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out, yes, you totally can. So how do you do that? How did you pull it off? Yeah. So I mean, some of it was um, some of some of it was that we were well set up for the situation. Like I had built some SaaS apps before, not that fast, but I had some experience there. Chris and I are both experienced Rails developers at this point, so that was uh, very useful. We weren't like learning a ton of new tech to get this done, but was but I think the real thing there was just that we had this natural forcing function. Mm-hmm. It was like we don't want to like not have launched by the end of the trip. Like maybe we'll keep working on this after the trip is is done, but we definitely need to get this live while we're still here. Um, and so, I honestly think that was the biggest factor. Was like we have a certain number of days, and so it just made us really ruthless about getting down to the bare minimum of stuff we needed to ship uh, in the first uh, the first little bit to actually launch this thing. So like we left tons and tons of stuff undone. Like it was like, oh, like what if someone's credit card expires? It's like, don't care. N- next problem. It's yeah. like that's that's a ways off. Like payments was like something we knew we needed to have, but we did like the most bare minimum Stripe integration possible. The simplest thing. You couldn't update your credit card. You couldn't change your password. You couldn't have forgotten your password. It was like all these like things that like a real mature web app needs eventually. We just punted on and just like focused on the super, super happy path. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think kind of what you alluded to about like the constraint of the timeline, I think is one of the most important uh, things people can change about the way they work in terms of trying to get some of this stuff done. Because I think what happens a lot of time is people will have this grand idea for this thing that they want to build and they'll just try to build it until they get to the point that they've built all the pieces and features of it that they want to build and then launch it when it's you know, quote unquote done. Yeah. Um, but if you tell yourself like, okay, on this date, I'm going to launch some version of this app and I don't want there to be things in the app that the user can click that is going to cause an error every single time. And, you know, I want whatever I ship to be working. It forces you to figure out ways to reduce the scope while still making it sort of a useful app. And I think like Mm -hmm. some of the examples of stuff that you talked about are are perfect examples of that. Like um, someone's credit card expiring, right? Like, first of all, there's there's no guarantee that that'll ever even happen in your app. You don't know sure. how many people are even going to sign up or, or whatever, right? And the very first time that happens, um, you'll probably find out from a Stripe notification email or something. And you can 100% solve that problem manually. You can email the customer and be like, hey, we noticed that your uh, credit card expired. And I mean... First yep. of all, I think there's tools that you can use out there already for doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have to write the code. Worst case scenario, if someone was comfortable sending you their credit card number in an email, you could update it in Stripe. Um, <laughs> or if it came to it now, like you have the evidence that like, okay, we need a way in the app for someone to update 
their credit card because it finally happened. Okay, so so build the feature now. <laughs> For what it's worth, we never built that feature. Yeah, <laughs> Trailmix still does not handle expiring credit cards. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so I'm curious about um, if there's if there's other examples you can think of when you're working on either of these projects um, of of things you were able to punt on because you were able to leverage uh, some existing service or tool to handle it or because there was just no evidence that that situation would ever come up. Totally. Like, I mean, that was, that was a lot of it. Like we were, we were always looking for things like that. And I think a, a nice example is on, so we, we had so much fun building trail mix that we did another codecation and built another product. Only this time it was like intentional. I came with like a number of ideas and we picked the one that we liked the best and that was a service called Briefs, which is um, for publishing super short, short podcasts via email. So you record a little a thing on your phone and then send it to a special email address and it publishes a podcast episode for you. And uh, on that app, we basically never built any onboarding. So the way we would onboard people was like we, were, we coded until we had enough that we could like onboard our first customer. I think that honestly took like two days or two and a half days uh-huh. to get to like the super, super bare minimum. And then I would just schedule calls with people. And I would do a Skype call with them and I would have them sh- and I would tell them ahead of time, hey, like, I'm going to ask you to sign up for the service on the call. So please bring your credit card. And this would like, by the way, blow people's minds because we had like an email capture on the landing page and they would like someone would enter their email in and like five minutes later, I'd be like, hey, I'm Ben. I'm one of the creators of this thing. I'd like to schedule a call with you to get you onboarded into the product. And they would go, what? Like it was people were like shocked, uh, but it worked. Like people said yes, almost like probably 70% of the time. And so they would, I would, they would share their desktop and I would basically watch them get into our product. And this, by the way, so it's, this started off as like a, a constraint that we were um, imposed. This was like a, we didn't have time to build an onboarding flow, but it ended up being incredibly valuable for us because the first person that I onboarded had a really rough time. Like just so many things we thought were clear were totally not clear. And like copy we put on the page, they didn't read it button text they didn't read it like it that was one of my my takeaways is like people aren't going to read like maybe three words on, on your entire page, page. <laughs> yeah like they might read the h1 and they might read what a button says before they click it and the rest is just totally like background noise but so after that first call like it took like 20 pretty uncomfortable minutes to like let this person fumble their way through the onboarding and my next call was like uh 30 minutes after that one ended and so chris and i like hacked on the worst parts of the onboarding just and then pushed it to production yeah and then did the next call and like i honestly took i took like probably three pages of notes like full like handwritten pages of notes during that first call and the next one was so much better i took like a page and a half of notes like oh this thing's bad this thing needs improvement and by watching people sign up with the for the app we made the sign up process so much better than it was that's awesome um so i think an interesting topic to get into is like with the apps that you're talking about, like Briefs and Trail Mix, they are both just by design extremely small apps, right? Like there's not yeah. a lot that they do. But a lot of people are trying to maybe build something a little bit more ambitious. And I think it's easy to to assume that like, well, my app is big. My app has to have all these features. So there's no way that I can ship a version of this app in less than six months it's just going to take six months to build everything that i need to build but i'm personally still not convinced that that is true i'm pretty sure that almost almost everything can kind of be 
distilled down to like a smaller set of features that you can deploy sooner, even if it's not like the app that you had in your head and you can constantly iterate on getting towards something. And and the reason I'm thinking about this a lot right now is because I'm sort of uh, in the early stages of, of possibly starting up on a new a new SaaS product and I'm putting on my sort of product management hat a little bit and trying to figure out like, okay, well, this is the app that we want to build, but I don't want to wait three, four, six months before we have it in customers' hands. So what can we do? Like, what's the two-week version of this app that we mm-hmm. can have people start using, even if it's not as good as the competition and doesn't have as many features. Like there has to be like some core value proposition that we can solve in like a shorter period of time. So I thought it'd be interesting to maybe talk about like how you can, how you can find out what that is and what you should be focusing on when you're building stuff like this. So an example is the very first SaaS product that I built by myself was this thing called Nitpick CI, which was basically mm-hmm. like the PHP version of Hound that you guys had at Thoughtbot, right? For mm-hmm. um, whenever someone opens a pull request on uh, your repo, there'd be like a webhook fired from GitHub to the app. It would kind of scan the pull request looking for like style violations and then comment on them saying, Hey, like you need an extra space here, or this should, this should have a trail and comma or, um, whatever. And there's a lot of things that you could build, uh, with an app like that. And I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they think about like, okay, so what is the, what is the core thing that this app needs to do? This app needs to be set up such that when, a pull request is open, GitHub pings the app, and the app goes through and, and makes all these comments. And I think what people do a lot of the time is they think like, what are sort of like the dependencies of that feature? What has to like exist before I can build that feature? Well, if someone if if we need a notification whenever someone opens a pull request on a repo, well, that means that users need to be able to like activate the service on a given repository. So first we need to build the feature where we list all the person's repositories in the UI and they have a button to activate or deactivate a repo. But for someone to be able to do that, they also need to be able to have an account. So first we have to build the ability for someone to register for the service and it's not a free service. So that means that we have to have Stripe integration and stuff like that. And I think what happens a lot of time is you you kind of map backwards from like this this feature and you find yourself in a situation where you're building all this sort of like ancillary stuff before you ever get to like the heart of the problem that you're trying to solve, which is writing the code that actually scans the pull request, finds the violations and posts the comments on GitHub. So like a, a story that I can tell is that what I actually did with that service uh, that I think is maybe different than what a lot of people would do is the very first code that I wrote was the code that parses the webhook from GitHub to understand all the different pieces of the pull request and looks for the style guide violations and comments. And it's easy to look at that and think like, well, how is that useful if no one can actually activate repos or actually you know, create an account or anything? And it turns out it was still totally useful because I actually deployed a version of that app for about three months that we used mm-hmm. internally at Titan where I worked where there was no such thing as user accounts and there was no UI for creating, uh, for activating repositories or anything. So how how did it work? Like mm. what I did is anytime that we wanted to add it to a new repo, I pulled up SQL Pro, which is the best 
MVP admin tool of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just added a new row to the database table with the repository URL from GitHub. Then I went to the GitHub UI and I went to the webhook section in the settings and I manually added a webhook that went back to the service. And that this version of the app ran for months where anytime we start a new project, I would just spend two, three minutes setting this stuff up manually and everything actually worked and there was no users there was there was no anything so i think um an interesting an interesting thing for people to think about is like how can you tackle like the core feature of your application and avoid like all the things that you think of as dependencies for that thing like when when you really think about it it's like the way that i try to think about this stuff is it's like I want to start with the thing that's like impossible to do manually yeah. and then like kind of in a list figure out like what's the thing that's like the next most annoying to do manually and the next most annoying to do manually. Mm. And when you think about it that way, you end up with like a list of features that almost seems like flipped around from what you might do if you're trying to like build like the whole experience, but it lets you right. get to the thing that matters and ship that like as early as possible. And when you think about things like this, even like user registration isn't that important because if someone wants to try out the app, I can always add a record to the database that has their email and yes. some generated password that I can give them or whatever. Like login matters because they need to be able to log in, sure, but they don't actually, I can create their account for them. That's just mm-hmm. like one more thing that I don't actually have to code before someone can actually use the app, you know? Sure. Yeah. I've made, I've written apps where we don't have log out for a while. Because <laughs> you gotta Just get in, but like, yeah, in. it's fine. <laughs> Here are cookies if you need to. Um, so yeah, this is. I had a number of thoughts while you were you're talking. Yeah, and so a couple of things. So the first thing is to recognize that as developers, I feel like we kind of love complexity. Like we like to complain about how everything is broken and terrible or whatever. But I feel like there's part of our brains that are just like, oh man, all these edge cases. Like I'm so smart for being able to think about the, all these edge cases and come up with all the ways this can fail. And so for most people doing this, you're probably going to err on the side of like taking on too much and spending too much time on the way things can go wrong or the way you can make it like what the way you have to like what you need to do to generalize this for all cases. Yeah, sure. So, but like an example of that could be like even something as simple as like, oh, we need to be able to paginate this list because what if someone has 5,000 entries? Exactly. But like people only add one entry a day. And yes, that means we have at least two months before pagination maybe matters or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. Let, let, let the world push you into more complexity. It's so easy to just like assume you're going to need X, Y, Z and never actually need those features in reality. Can Um, you think of any examples of that on stuff that you've worked on? I mean, I did this all the time. Yeah. So like, do you really need a UI? Can you build a command line version of this thing instead just to test like the core functionality yeah. of it? That's actually Ab a, in areas. That's a great yeah, example because I actually know like uh, Taylor Alwell, a friend of mine, he's not a UI front end guy, but he has ideas for products that he wants to build all the time. And he mm. always just builds a CLI tool version of, of everything because it's a user interface, but it's not a visual user interface. And you can do everything that you need from, from the totally. CLI. So it kind of gets him... It like judo's that problem of like, oh, I have to like come up with some design first before I can right. actually build the damn thing that I have the idea for. It's just a way to kind of like skirt that problem completely. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. A, a nice example of this, by the way, is Nomad List. Mm. Do you know this app? Yeah. Yeah. Peter Levels. Yeah. Peter Levels. So it's, it, if you go to that site, it's like a beautiful, like it's, it's a great site. It's like really well done. And it's quite a, a serious app at this point, mm-hmm. functionality wise. But it started as a Google like sheet. It started as a spreadsheet where he was just like, it's, it's a list of, you know, cities and how good they are for being a digital nomad in yeah. them. And in the beginning, it was literally just a sheet and like you could go in there and you could sort it and look at stuff and like make your own graphs and whatnot. And eventually he turned it into an app and he's doing the same thing now with a, a like an airline list or something. Yeah, I was about to mention that. I saw that and I thought it was so cool. It's just like, why you don't need to write any code at all, really. Yeah, he's written zero code and he already has a useful thing. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe people won't use it and they won't like it and then he won't have to do anything with it. Like yeah. he's testing his core assumption. And that's what I think the... the should be kind of your guiding principle through this like first of all avoid the complexity but second of all what are you assuming that might be a risk here so like his assumption is like people care about airline stats or you know stats about cities to for being a digital nomad and if it turns out he's wrong but he's only made a google sheet who cares like that's the easiest way to like get that feedback versus building out a whole product and then learning that is so much more painful yeah totally and i think the um the other thing too right is like maybe people don't care about the spreadsheet version or maybe not as many people care about the spreadsheet version because maybe there's things that you can't do with a spreadsheet that would make it uh, more useful but you can at least like get feedback from people that that explicitly tell you that then you know what i mean like this is cool but like i can't star the airlines that i want to use or or something like that you know what i mean yeah if you can't get people excited about your core idea at least a little bit that's a bad sign like a good sign is like oh this would be awesome if this could do this like that's when like you're kind of onto something but if it's like yeah i made this thing and like basically no it never went anywhere no one cared that much like great you just save yourself a ton of time well done just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, So if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners if you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio create an account and install rollbar in your application rollbar will give you a 100 dollars gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at open collective so thanks to rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week back to the show i think like another element of this that is um is interesting and 
I don't know. I don't know if this affects you as much, but it's definitely affected me in the past where it's easy to get kind of caught up in like the design phase of an app, like the visual design phase, uh, creating mockups and stuff like that. And I think a big mistake that you can make a lot of the time is spending all your time in like sketch or whatever, trying to like figure out what this app is going to be, but adding like sort of implying all this functionality that's going Mm. to prevent you from being able to like ship it fast enough. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So like if you Mm -hmm. figure like, Oh, it's going to take, there's like, a two week version of this app and there's like a one year version of this app. I think a lot of the time people's when they're open something like sketch, they're not thinking about the two week version of the app. They're always thinking about right. the one year version of the app and they're adding like all these fancy features like file attachments and fancy filters. And you have this like really interesting UI with all this functionality. But by the time you're done that you've, you've created this situation for yourself now where it's like, well now I have to catch up with all this stuff with code before I can actually get this out there uh, right. because I spend so much time designing the the finished version of the app and not like, you know, the skateboard version of the app. If you've ever seen that image that mm-hmm. goes around about like how to iterate on products where it's it, I, I think it's like, I'll try and describe it, but it's basically like, there's like how not to iterate on a product is like, first we build the tire for the car. Then we build the chassis. Then we, you know, fabricate the windows and then we put it all together and we have a car at the end of the day that means like you don't have a vehicle until the car is done uh whereas like the more practical approach or if you want to be able to get feedback for people and test your assumptions and stuff is first you build a skateboard then you build a bicycle then you build a motorcycle then you build a car and the thing that people don't like about that a lot of time is it feels like I can't use any of the parts I built for the skateboard for the car. Mm. It's like disposable in that sense by the time I've gotten to that um, last version. And people have people feel uncomfortable with that a lot of time. And I, I think I that comes think it's a different to, problem. OK, I think I think it's embarrassment. Mm. I think it's embarrassing to launch something that, you know, is a very small crack at an existing problem, because if you care enough to make a thing for it, then you have taste in that area like you have opinions sure. and you can picture a really good way of solving this problem and so to come out with your version 0.1 that takes on such a small portion of that in such an incomplete way is like requires actually a lot of confidence in a way mm-hmm. to like know that you're gonna like you to, to be comfortable that you're testing your your most important assumption and know that you can get somewhere good interesting yeah i think that's definitely true for sure like I'll even say that I think I even have a problem with that, even though I do strongly believe in building things in like a very iterative way. And I guess like the way that I usually do stuff like this is I'll build like the skateboard version, but I won't necessarily like launch it. Like I'll deploy Mm -hmm. it. And I I like to like live in this world where like the master branch is always deployable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that mindset Mm -hmm. and what, what that means a lot of the time is like building the skateboard version and having that in the master branch. So even if I know, like I don't really want like to charge people money until like I have this feature set, that doesn't mean that I'm going to like build for that feature set directly. I still might take like the longer zigzag path where at least there's these like little checkpoints that I can hit where it's like, here's a working version of the app. Here's a working version of the app instead of trying to go, a thousand miles before there's a working version of the app. You know what I mean? Yep, totally. That that thing you talked about 
of people being in sketch and designing like a the, the one-year version of the product mm-hmm. i think is a product of uh as a result of doing things in kind of the wrong order which is like let me figure out a design and a full featured product and then let me figure out what order to build it in so i can start small and get going and mm-hmm. i think that's you've you've inverted where things should be like this i think your first step is like what is the smallest possible useful thing i could build now let me go design the minimal amount of things that i have to to make that happen yeah and then as you time over time you add to that it's much easier to add to things like that i think than to like design the full thing and then be like okay what does this look like if 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 only one percent of this is actually there Mm -hmm. that's just like a a brutal design challenge i think yeah it's it's a lot harder to like try and strip away pieces from like a fully thought through really developed product idea than it is Mm -hmm. to sort of like add to it as as you go sometimes mm-hmm. i worry or i wonder too if like uh, we have the same sort of like problem in code a lot of the time right where um mm-hmm. you, where you my mind was going to yeah you worry about like well what about like when this gets to scale or like what if we add like another integration and now this design is not generalized enough to support like th- this and that and you know something that uh, i learned you know, a long time ago that I've, I've tried to espouse as much as I can is, uh, it actually comes down to that famous Kent Beck tweet that, that I know you love too. the like first, mm-hmm. uh, what is it, what is it again? It's like when you're trying to like add some like change, it's like first make the change easy and then make the easy change. That's it. And there's like an assumption here that there's like an implication that that means that not all changes are supposed to necessarily be easy at the beginning. And it's not like Mm -hmm. a failure of your ability to code or your ability to like design an architecture of a system. If last week's architecture doesn't support what we need this week, that doesn't mean like that one sucked. It means like that was exactly what we needed for that feature set, but now we're trying to build something different. So things are going to have to, uh, to change but but people struggle with that a lot of time i think still in code and everyone's always trying to anticipate the future and think like you know i don't want to have to change this and i think a lot of it is because like people worry that it's it feels like a personal failure of their like ability to like design some system if mm, they right. can't get it right in the beginning you know quote unquote right even though like that's the yeah. wrong way to think about it entirely and i think like that same sort of like thinking can apply to just like product in general too, where you're worried that like, okay, well we're going to design this UI and we we have to make sure that it's going to like accommodate this feature uh, in the future. Whereas I think it's important to feel free to iterate on that stuff just as much as you would on code. You know what I mean? Like maybe you have a link in your navigation that goes directly to like your email marketing integration or whatever there's like a link directly but now like you add like integrations with all sorts of other services and it doesn't really make sense for there to be a nav item that says email marketing maybe now it makes sense for it to be integrations and email marketing lives in there like that's like the sort of change that's kind of analogous to the sort of change you might make when you're making a change to your system design that you should feel fine about making to like the product design as well you know does that make sense yeah this this approach has served me really well and i I, i'm pretty Mm, it's become pretty habitual now and i and I, I think it's useful which is i just i'm pretty good at being like do we have to do this now 
That's kind mm-hmm. of like a, the, the meta question, I think, which is like, does it, does it have to be the really good version now? Does it have to generalize now? Do we have to handle that edge case now? Because we'll never know less than we know right now. Like in the future, we're going to have more details. We're going to know if we have a new integration partner. We're going to know if we have 10 of these versus one of these. So let's, let's just wait. Let's, let's do the smallest thing we possibly can for now. And that's especially crucial if you're trying to ship something fast, if it's, especially if it's a side project kind of thing. But I do this all the time. Like when I had a, like a coding day job, that's what I did. Like same thing for clients and for, for like working on normal apps that are already shipped. It's like for the new feature, for the whatever. Like do we, like, can you push stuff off until later? Is, is usually just a, a thing worth asking. Yeah. Can you think of um, some examples of that, like real world examples? Um, sure. Like billing, for example. Like pe- billing is a total iceberg problem. Like as a developer, you're like, oh, billing, Stripe, no problem. I'll throw Stripe in there and then like we'll be done. It takes like a half a day. And it's like, yeah, getting the super happy path credit card thing it, it is about a half a day maybe. And then like it's like another couple hundred hours uh, over the next whatever year or two <laughs> to handle all the actual things you need to handle like it gets complicated like there's like you have your yeah it's just trust me <laughs> this happened to me on a bunch of apps it, it gets complicated and so it's um don't worry about it i guess like if you if you if you need to charge somebody do the simple happy path and then just like stop or ideally don't even do any billing at all like if you can build an app where like you call someone on a Skype call and have them like enter a credit card, like tell you their credit card on the phone, you punch it into the Stripe admin, like do that. Like just just hold off on things. Like billing is a, is a great example. Use your accounts if you can. If someone doesn't have to log in, if it doesn't absolutely have to happen, like don't do that. Don't do auth. Don't do users. Don't have a user table. Uh, teams is a big one. Like teams of users, invites. When people accept an invite, how do you resend an invite? What if I sent it to the wrong address? When should the link expire? All that stuff. There's there's all these iceberg problems that sound pretty simple. Like, oh, a user should have a team. And like, as you get into it, it just gets nastier and nastier. And so just by default, I think you should be kind of suspicious. And remember that that thing I said about like, you will tend to think of all the little edge cases and the complexity and like it secretly makes you kind of happy to focus on it so go the other way try to overcompensate for that yeah yeah that makes sense something that makes me think about that i'm curious to get uh, your opinion on is how do you feel about like shipping stuff to production knowing that it doesn't handle like these edge cases in a in in a way where it's like i know for sure that if someone does x y or z like they're gonna get a 500 error Mm. i mean in the early i think that's not the worst thing ever i think a worse so like if someone clicks a link and it blows up that's like kind of a bummer that's too bad but if you spent 40 hours out of your 80 hour budget building a thing and no one clicks on that link that to me is worse yeah so again i would i'd rather let the real world pain force me into something like i've put things in apps before like a button for a feature where i'm like okay we think people want this feature and i've built a button that when they click it just says like thanks for letting us know you wanted this feature and fires off like a little email to me sure. or records a re- an event in the database and it's it's and then like wow it got clicked seven times by our 400 customers in the last couple of weeks so it's not actually that important <laughs> we probably shouldn't build this we should probably yeah. build something else that's yeah, like th- a nice test i think it's like kind of a gray I don't know. There's certain examples like you're saying where I can think of where it's like, I don't want to ship something where it's like easy to break. Um, You know, like I I don't want to like half ass something necessarily. But at the same time, there's also like examples of edge cases where 
it's like I would rather the data tell me that I ever have to solve that than worry yeah. about it right now. An example of that might be like maybe you have the ability for people to like attach files and you don't have the ability for people to attach files that are like larger than one gig because you just didn't design the system in a way that was like robust enough to handle that because maybe that's a way more complicated problem than supporting 50 kilobyte attachments. Mm -hmm. So if not a single person ever uploads a file bigger than, you know, the size that actually caused the problem, if you never see that error, well, maybe it's a waste of time to, to solve that problem. Like that's the sort of thing where I think I would just, I would wait until like that error shows up in roll bar or whatever that says, Hey, someone just tried to upload a file and your whole thing is kaput now. I I can't tell you over the course of my career, how many times I have been like, well, this is definitely not going to work over the long term, but like, let's, let's just solve this problem later when it pops up and then it never happens. We never get back to it. Yeah. Or maybe it occurs once, but we have 10 other things that are clearly more important and it just never makes it to the top of the priority queue. Yeah. Like this happens again and again and again. My ability to predict what things are, what, what things will become a problem in the future is just not that good. And so I just don't try that hard. Yeah. And I try to like let, it, let the actual reality and actual pain push me into things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think something that's like somewhat uh, related to this I'm, I'm thinking about is like you don't want to like try and build stuff in a way where you have a bunch of features that are like sort of half working but not fully working and it's like easy for for people to break them and i think what i'm trying to get at here is you don't want to build your app in a way where you're sort of doing like a breadth over depth sort of like approach like if you have Mm. like four features that you want to build you don't want to like be building them all in parallel and half building them all and then trying to deploy some half broken Mm. version of this to production for people to test because you're just like you're postponing your ability to deliver something that actually works like it makes a lot more sense to pick a feature and sort of tackle it as like a vertical slice all the way through the system until it's done before moving on to the next one um yeah yeah, what do you think about that is that something you you thought about much um i yes i like it a lot so it's it's to me that approach is like thinking like what is the what is the most important feature and how do we do it well like well like well enough to like show people that this thing is valuable versus our competitors have this feature chart and we want to have a check mark next to all these features too and so let's build a, like enough to like be able to put the check mark on there like I've, yeah. I've worked on things where it was that was clearly a motivation it's like our competitors can do these things so let's make sure we do these four things next and uh, you know, we don't, we haven't thought that deeply about these. We haven't thought like how they'll integrate with the product. We just want to make sure we can say, yeah, we can also do that. And that is like such death for product quality. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like, and the thing is like, if you could look at your competitors products and like actually use all those features or talk to them candidly, they would probably tell you, yeah, these two never really worked. No one uses this third one. This fourth one's actually pretty okay. That's what people really like. Yeah. But here you are kind of just blindly doing all four because, you know, you got to match the check marks. Yeah. And I think this sort of comes back to something we talked about before, too, where it's like, even if you know, like you need to have that feature set for your product to be competitive in the market that you're trying to serve or whatever, that doesn't mean that like you should build that, that you should think of that as V1 still. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if there's five features in this like list of features that this product has, it's still better to finish one and deploy that 
even if it's just internally for you to use, just so you can kind of look at that as like a, here's like a save point in the product development, you know, like Mm. if, if worst case scenario, we can always fall back to here. And like, this was a working version of the app I guess like that's sort of a metaphor that I think of in my head with, with this stuff is like, I want to have like as many real save points as possible. It's like Mm. the same thing when you're making like commits to a repo, right? Like you want to like commit when the tests are passing sort of thing. It's like, this is working rather than like, I wrote like the opening if statement commit, even though there's a syntax error because there's like no closing brace or something like you wouldn't do it that way. And you can sort of extrapolate that to, to product development, I think a lot of time too. And I think like another mistake around this that people make that's not so much about just like building half-assed versions of features, but more just about like the way in which people build stuff out. And it comes back to sort of the design thing we talked about too. And I've had this problem happen on on teams I've been on, especially like uh, bigger teams where you might have like a group of people that are dedicated to doing like all the designs. And then there's like people that are like building out the templates and doing like some of the interactive JavaScript stuff. And then there's like the backend team that are like building out all the backend features and all like these three groups of people are sort of in these isolated chunks. And there's this expectation that at some point we're just going to like wire them up and it's going to be done and everything and everything's going to work. Um, mm-hmm. But in my experience, like the wiring up ends up being like 80% of, of the actual work of getting things totally. actually done. And while all that stuff is happening, you don't have any like actual working features um, because everything is just like this portion of this feature is done. This portion of this feature is done. Like, okay, we just have to do all the database work for these five features now, and then we'll be done. Whereas I think it makes a lot more sense to, you know, do the design front end and back end stuff for one feature in like one bucket, like kind of group things by feature instead of by the type of work necessarily. Totally. You know? Yeah. Undeployable stuff stuck in branches is a big smell. Yeah. Like you so much better to ship small, small completed things and then move on to the next thing than have like a bunch of parallel work. It feels like you're going faster because you've parallelized it, but you, you kind of aren't, I think, in terms of like learning mm-hmm. and actually delivering value to people. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, So here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, So you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, With Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. 
this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So I think something that may be interesting to talk about a little bit here, um, you tell me if it's interesting, but hmm. this approach I think is valuable even when you're like core value proposition is maybe something that is hard and it's going to take a, a, a long time to get to. An example that I'm thinking of is what you guys are working on with Tuple. Like yep. I've been following the, along with that. And I know like at this point, you guys are at a point where you're working in like C plus plus and stuff, trying to build this tool. That's going to be super high performance because that is the reason that people are going to want to use this versus some of the other hodgepodge sort of solutions that are out there. Mm-hmm. But you guys didn't start like slinging C++ on day one, right? And it doesn't it's mean true. like you shipped a, a shittier version for people to actually try out. But like you've still sort of taken this like very iterative path where there's been a lot of like learn this, throw it away, build the better version where we can't even reuse any of the work that we've done. Throw that away, build the better version. Um, So mm-hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit about about that story maybe and how that sure. kind of pertains to what we've been talking about today yeah definitely so i'm uh started a company with two friends and we're trying to build an app for remote pair programming and one of the core things that we think this has to do our core value proposition is that it's really low latency because to type on someone else's machine requires very quick feedback otherwise it, it feels painful and it sucks so this is kind of a, a trickier problem in that our one of our core value props is hard to do technically yeah but we wanted to take an iterative, iterative approach anyway and see like how high level, like how much code could we use that's off the shelf and how high level a language could we use to get this done. And so our first prototype, and, and by the way, there's just a bunch of stuff to learn along the way. Like WebRTC itself is actually like a huge thing and requires a ton of, uh, a ton of learning. So it's not like we could just, we couldn't just start off on like, you know, hard mode. Yeah. So to, to learn the space and to like get going we started with like a really high level prototype that we wrote in um what's that called electron yeah and so like electron is like a tech stack on top of a tech stack on top of a tech stack (laughs) and so it's like it's not that fast it's 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 got a lot going on but it let us learn like the basics of webrtc it's like okay here's how we get a video stream going here's how you send the audio okay here's how two peers connect and what that looks like and we started learning the ropes basically and after uh, building that, it was like, yeah, this 
is, is does not going to give us enough control. We need to be able to, to handle these dependencies differently. We need just, just more our hands more in the guts of this thing. So we more or less threw that away and started version two. And this was, by the way, like a, about a month of work. Sure. Uh, and we and it, was, it wasn't something we released. It was an internal prototype. Yeah. It was like, okay, this is for our learning and for us to use and to see what it's like. And oh yeah, okay, as we use this, this actually does suck in these ways, some of which were surprising. And then we, <clears throat> and then we started version two, which was built in Swift. And it's like, okay, now we're at like more like the OS level. This is faster. We have more control, but we are still um, bridging across like to C++ code. Like we still have these like intermediate dependencies and not as much control as we would actually like. Uh, we learned some more again and like getting more and more, like the second one happened faster uh, in certain ways. Um, and like we, we learned some more things from this prototype. Uh, again, didn't release it except to, I guess you used it. I used it with you. Yeah. You, you're the only person that has a copy of that. Um, and, uh, uh, but we learned stuff again. It was like, okay, yeah, we're, we're closer. This is better, but we really like, if speed is our thing, we got to have like full control. We got to be using WebRTC directly, got to write C++. And so now we're on version three, which I think is as low as we're going to have to go. Fingers crossed. Yeah, you'll There's be not much assembly lower. or something. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think assembly is in our future. So I, th- I think we're at the bottom now. Um, and and that is going well. And like we, we actually are just getting like back to feature parity with the original ones. And like, okay, now we're, we're, we're getting there and we now have all this control and it's super fast. And so it's like, okay, cool. Like we're... We, we finally hit where we, we think we need to be. And I, I, there's a way, like, it would have been, I'm not sure if it would have been nice. I, I, the, the thing I ask myself that I don't totally know the answer to is like, could we have just started here? Could we have saved a few months of development? And maybe, but honestly, I think learning this, given the amount of learning we had to do to get where we are, not having to learn it all at once was useful. Yeah. Like there's just, there's so many moving pieces that being able to start at a high, with a high level language that we already knew with frameworks that we were already familiar with was useful for because it like meant like the unknown space was was less dominant and then over time we leaned into it more and more uh, as we found we had to like again we let that pain force us to that next level like we didn't want to go write c++ so we were trying to sure. avoid it yeah like, we would be happy to not but it was just like yeah like we just can't control this the way we want to so i guess we're going down a level so what do you think the experience would have been like if you had just said on day one we're going to build this in c++ you know, which is like a stack that none of us are super familiar with. And we got all this stuff to learn. And, you know, I, I don't know how, how long you guys have been working on this now. I think it's like about seven months or something like that. Yeah, that's about right. So se- seven months in now, you guys are right around the point where you have a decent C++ based prototype. Maybe if you mm-hmm. had just built the C++ prototype in the first place, it would have taken five months but mm. instead of seven, but from zero mm-hmm. to five, there would have like never been a, a demoable thing or something yeah. that you guys could try or, or no real like wins, you know what I mean? That you could like celebrate exactly. as easily in, in a sense. So, yeah. So, so what do you think about like that alternative journey? Like, do you regret that in any way or, or what do you think would have sucked about that versus how you've done it? Yeah, I don't think I regret it. Um, I, the thing that I would be concerned with, I think, is just like the mental burden of working so long without a thing that works. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like there's, it's the hard thing so far, like we'll see, I don't know all the hard things yet, but one of the hard things about starting a company so far is that it's just like your mental state affects you so much. Like it's great to have no boss, except that now you're your own boss. Mm-hmm. And so if you're having an off day mentally, it's like there's there's so much less like pressure from outside. There's no one like looking over your shoulder and being like, hey Ben, how about that deadline? Or you said you were gonna get me the whatever. And so I feel like your brain state 
matters even more than usual for productivity. And if we had spent like four and a half months and it was like, wow, we still can't like share a desktop across the internet. This is like kind of scary. I think we, who knows, like we might've gotten way more discouraged. It might've been just harder on us mentally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I I think that, um, that's similar even when you're working on something where like the tech stack isn't changing Mm. as you're iterating Mm -hmm. on it. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's a source of a lot of people's just burnout in general on, on a side project. It's like if you approach it in a way where you're not going to have a finished thing, or something that you can actually like click around in and see like, oh, it's solving the problem that I was trying to solve yeah. for for months, then that sort of spark is gonna is gonna burn out for sure. Yeah. Like the the prototypes that we built are somewhat frustrating because we ended up not using them, but they were also a source of excitement. Yeah. Like the first time you can hear somebody, the first time you can see a screen, like uh-huh. the first time you figure out how to make it a little faster. It's like all these little things were like wins along the way that kept us going. Yeah. Like they were exciting at the time. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I think that's maybe a, a good place to start start wrapping up. Do you have any uh, totally. close, closing thoughts or anything on this I topic? do. There's one thing that I, I sort of touched on um, implicitly, but I want to call out kind of a little bit more explicitly. Sure. So I think the best, we talked about some techniques for helping you ship. And I think there's like just sort of like a high level thing that will help more than almost anything else. And that is time boxing things. Mm. So developers, I, I think a lot of people have some scar tissue around deadlines. And deadlines, I think, are great unless, so like a fixed deadline is a good thing. A fixed deadline married to a fixed scope is a terrible thing. Yeah. But if you can flex the scope, a deadline is great. It forces you to prioritize. Like all these tips we've given for how do you pick what to build and how do you think about this and how do you not overdesign and like it's, those are all, those all will fall out naturally if it's like, I have to ship something before this date. Yeah. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out exactly, and then you, and you won't do it perfectly. You'll you'll make some mistakes, but the next time it'll be even better. And that's just how it goes. Is if you're a human, um, so like the codecations worked well for us accidentally because it was just like we got to ship this thing before we leave this state, mm-hmm. um, and that like that accidentally pushed us to be like really good and ruthless at prioritizing. Um, and so like I think setting deadlines can be a really useful thing. Don't set the scope too. But just say, like, okay, this is going out on this day and like commit to it publicly or, or put yourself in a situation where it's painful or annoying to not actually hit that date. Yeah. And then I think you will see the, the results that you want. Yeah, I agree. I think um, Basecamp has written a lot about how they use deadlines. And I'll have to link that up in the, in the show notes uh, because they're uh, big proponents of that. I think they use like a six week sort of cycle and they sort of they talk about it like they think there's like basically a two week version of any project, a six week version, a six month version. You know what I mean? You, you can pick any time frame. There is some version of it that you can build in that time frame. It's just a different version. You just have to make mm-hmm. sure you're thinking about it in terms of like, we're trying to solve this problem in this time frame and sort of think about at it think about it at a bit of a more abstract level than you might be used to thinking about it. Like it's not that we want to build these screens and create these tables and wire up this integration in this time frame. It's like we need users to be able to do X. Um what is the two week version of that? Figure that out mm-hmm. and build it. So Yeah. Awesome man. Well yeah, it's been a pleasure having you back on on the show. What's the best way for people to to keep up with you and what you're working on with Tuple? Hmm. Um, if you care about Tuple in particular, you can go to tuple.app and sign up on our landing page. If you want to hear more generally the things I'm working on, Twitter is probably good. I tweet a fair amount of 
in progress stuff and what I'm thinking about generally software plus business cool. and I'm R00K on Twitter should people listen to this podcast that you put out every week too maybe oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I need to get better at my plugging yes um, if you want an even like hotter hot take uh, every week I record a podcast called the art of product and I talk about what's going on uh, business wise in my life Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. If anybody's interested in the show notes for this episode, you can head over to fullsackradio.com and check them out. Thanks to Cloudinary and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week, and I'll see you next time.